Hey everyone, uh, good to see you guys. Uh, good morning, welcome to The Exchange. So glad you guys are here. Do me a favor and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'd love to get you one just so you can follow along with us. But Philippians chapter 2. It is good to be back with you guys. I know I was here last week, um, but it's good to be back in the pulpit teaching with you guys. I've missed it. It's been a couple of weeks. Um, I'm really excited to be here. Our baby is two weeks old now. Baby Kinsley's two weeks old, which is crazy. We're kind of sleeping. Kimber gets less. I feel bad. I'm just kind of like, you're doing great, babe, in the middle of the night. Um, but no, it's been, um, it's been a beautiful two weeks. She's awesome. Micah is loving the big brother role. The, my wife's still at home recovering and just resting a little bit, but it is good to be with you guys. We're in the book of Philippians. I think this is our seventh week now in Philippians, and we're in the beginning part still of chapter two. It's great. Um, but I'm so excited for this text today. So let me just kind of catch you up to speed in case you are new. So we're in Philippians 2. Uh, the book of Philippians was written, guy, written by a guy named Paul. Paul, at one point in time, was an enemy of the church. He wanted nothing to do with Christians, nothing to do with Jesus. And then one day, God radically changed Paul's life. And Paul, who used to persecute Christians, is now being persecuted as a Christian. And Paul is writing the book of Philippians. He wrote a few other epistles from jail, but he wrote Philippians from jail while being chained to a soldier. And it seems as if this book is primarily about joy. And you look at Paul, and you look at his circumstances, and he's writing about joy, saying, hey, joy does not, is not based off your circumstances. It's based off a person. And really, the, the hope, I think, in many ways, of the Philippian church, because it's a unique city— and Paul's writing to them, and a couple weeks ago, Pastor Larry Thompson spoke about this, but Philippi was actually a colony of Rome, meaning it had certain benefits. The Philippians didn't pay taxes that the majority of the people in the kingdom would pay. They had certain rights, certain, certain governing rights in their lives. They could own land and different things like that. There was a benefit to being a Roman citizen, and Paul is writing to them saying, no, no, you're not a Roman citizen. You're a citizen of heaven. <clears throat> and just like in Philippi, the goal was bring Rome to Philippi, but Paul's saying, no, bring heaven to Philippi. Not just bring, don't just bring the, the Roman culture, Roman law, the Roman officials. Don't just bring Rome to Philippi, but bring God's heavenly culture, God's heavenly kingdom. And really that is our hope as a church, you guys. Our, our hope as a church is in a sense to be an extension of heaven on earth. Then people come here, they come to any church, that they experience Jesus, they see Jesus, they see a kingdom and culture of love that's founded on Jesus, that first and foremost we are citizens of heaven, and that is like really the heart of this chapter, so, um, and, and really of this book. But last week we specifically looked at, uh, Steve Mayo was here and he talked about a unity that changes minds, a unity that changes minds, and we looked at verse 1 through 4. And today we're going to look at verse 5 through 11, and we kind of have to go back a little bit to 1 through 4 because verse 5 is like this bridge between these two thoughts. But we're going to look at this text today that I think is actually one of, if not the most important text in all of Scripture. And I know I can be guilty of saying, like, this text is the best every week. But really, if, if the Bible was like a mountain range, this might be like the Mount Everest. Might be. And in all seriousness, when you look at this text, and if you're any Bible student and you want to know the word, I mean, this is a text that everyone, people get interested in and go, I need to know word for word. Let me, let me get into the Greek of this. Let me explore this more. Because Paul's going to get into some serious doctrine on who Jesus is specifically. This is a profound text. But more importantly even, Paul's not just here to say, here's doctrine and information about Jesus. He's saying this truth about Jesus should radically shape and change who we are. The Bible is never just meant to be information is meant to actually just lead to transformation in our lives. So here's the idea of this text today. We're going to learn some specific things about the doctrine, the character, nature of Jesus, yes. But the topic is humility, and the example is Jesus. And please hear that again. The topic is humility, the example is Jesus. And I'm so thankful the topic is, uh, the example is Jesus. It's not Paul. It's not me. It's not you. Be scary. You're like, Josiah, you're teaching on humility today. Are you going to teach on like how not to eat Reese's peanut butter cups next week? Come on. Like, I know. It's, it's kind of intimidating to teach on a topic like humility. Um, but, but in all seriousness, when you look at this, you go, Jesus, thankfully, is the example. Now, I do want to point this out to you. Um, it's believed, and it's almost anyone who studies this book or studies this section, it's almost as if Paul is writing about humility and then breaks into song. So verse 6 through 11 is actually a poem. Uh, there's certain like lyrical rhythms to this. It's either a poem or a confession the early church would say. 
It's really interesting. So if you look at verse 6 through 11, this was either something everyone knew. Like we have certain confessions or there's like different catechisms or statements of faith or things people say, I believe in, you know, and this would have been one of those confessions slash poems. So as Paul's writing about humility and just breaks in a song about Jesus and the doctrine of Jesus and how he was humbled and then how God exalted him. It's a beautiful thing and I, I want you to actually see it this way because these six verses, verse 6 through 11, are really six stanzas of three lines. And verse 8 has a fourth line, which we'll talk about because Paul's like bringing, shining light to this one little phrase. So this is a beautiful poem. This is the humble hymn of Jesus. This is a hymn to Jesus, a song to Jesus, a confession of Jesus. It is an incredible text of scripture. Now, before we just, again, read through it and, and dive into it, I hope and pray that God does redefine humility for us a little bit here. I hope God redirects our thoughts about humility in some ways. You know, it's not a false humility that we can so often see maybe in the church. You know, sometimes people are like, oh man, you're such a, they can say this to you at work, like, man, you're a really good worker, you're a really great leader, I love your personality, I love your joy, like, stop it, I'm not that. <laughs> say it again. Um, you know, I love what Warren Wearsby said. Warren Wearsby said, humility is not denying the gifts God has given you, but it's using those gifts for his glory. Humility is not denying the gifts God has given you. You're like, no, 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 come on. It's using those gifts that God has given you just for his glory. And so I hope God redefines and redirects this thought of, of humility for us. I hope that, that we as a church, you guys, will realize um, it's almost unhealthy sometimes to think too much about humility. You know, when, when, you're, when you're healthy in some ways, like when you're healthy, you don't even notice that you're healthy. You're, you're healthy. You know, it's not like you're ever going to know, like, oh my gosh, I'm humble. Not, there's not going to be this realization of that. I hope it's just like seen and not really even like spoken of in a sense. So this is something I hope God just kind of works in our hearts. So I just want to read Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. We're going to focus on verse 5 through 11, but we need to see verse 1 through 4 as well. So Philippians 2, let's read verse 1, and then we'll pray through this. Philippians 2, verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy... Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, that means pride, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Verse 5, here's this connecting, this bridge. Let this mind, this mind, what he's talking about. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Let's pray. Father, um, as we just come to this text, we just ask God that you would, um, that you just quiet our hearts a little bit, that you'd speak to us, that God, as we <laughs> even break down this text, that, that that would not get in the way of some beautiful truths that you want to ingrain into our lives. God, let this not just be doctrine and information, but we do ask, God, that you would produce just a Christ-like humility in us as we look to Christ's humility. And we just thank you, God. We thank you um, for the fact that you, God, left it all and that Jesus took on the sins of the world and he died even the death of the cross so that Jesus could be lifted up and exalted. And that we are here this morning, 2,000 years later, saying Jesus is Lord. And God, we just ask that as we do this, you'd be all glory. That we'd all the attention, all the focus would look to you, go to you. Jesus, just speak to us now. Do something fresh in our church. Uh, let this just be ingrained into us. Let it be just a Christ-based humility. And we ask this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Uh, there's something I, I believe within all of us that loves to see the exalted person be humbled and the humble person be exalted. So I think there's almost something, it's kind of, um, it's probably a poor reflection of us, but if you see someone who's prideful and arrogant and then something kind of tragic happens and they like fail, you're like, yeah, they had it coming. And that's probably because of the pride we have in our own hearts. But there's something about like wanting to see the prideful, those exalted ones, those who exalt themselves be humbled. 
And there's also something really refreshing if you think about the humble person being exalted. We're kind of like, yes, God, like, let them be noticed. Let them be seen. Like, let the Lord lift them up. Like, let the Lord do this. And there's something when you see the humble person get, the exalted person get humbled, but there's something beautiful about the humble person getting exalted. You know, it was my senior year of high school. Um, my senior year, we got out of school at 11.35. It's crazy. We had four periods. I was out of school at 11.35. It's dangerous for a senior. Uh, but we got out of school at 11.35, and then I had basketball practice at 3 o'clock. That was like my schedule for the most part every day of my senior year. Uh, so in between like 12 and 3, we would go a lot of times to this beautiful park. It had hills and just play disc golf. Um, not every day, but once in a while we would do this. And it was like 72 degrees, a lot of trees, a lot of hills. We have something called hills in California. It's cool. I don't know if you've ever seen one before here. Um, but it's beautiful. It was a lot of fun. And so, you know, just like any other day, there's one day, um, one of our discs got stuck in a tree. And so we do the normal thing. We try to throw a disc at it, and then we get another one stuck usually. Uh, We try shaking the tree, but this time we couldn't. So there's a branch, you know, maybe like 10 feet high. It was stuck in the tree. I was with probably five friends. And they're all like, we're all trying. And eventually one guy jumps and tries to like, you know, hit the branch and doesn't get it. Another guy tries to jump and hit the branch. And I'm like, hey, guys, (laughs) I got this. I play basketball. I'm like, oh, you guys can't grab that branch? You know, it's 10 feet high, like the rim. So arrogant and pridefully, I jump up and I grab the branch and I'm like <laughs> looking down below and I start shaking the branch. The, the disc is stuck and I start shaking like vehemently, just shaking and shaking. And then you hear this <coughs> and you hear break, right? And like in slow motion, I'm just falling <laughs> with this branch on my chest. I land on a root, like on my back, just in so much pain. The branch falls on my chest, probably like 40, 50 pound branch, like thick branch falls on my chest. I am out of breath like <laughs> Like, just trying to, and my friends, of course, are just laughing their heads off. Like, this is the best thing they've ever seen. I'm going, I can't breathe. Like, trying to talk to them. I can barely breathe. There's other guys I can hear on the distance, these, like, older guys who are just, like, laughing sore. Like, oh, the guy trying to be cool. And, like, I fell and, like, broke my back. And uh, by the time I caught my breath, they're like, oh, Mr. Basketball Guy, huh? Can you jump and touch 10 feet, huh? How'd, how'd that treat you? Now, I had it, I definitely had it coming. Like, I, I remember just, like, in their face going, <laughs> hanging up there looking down. And you, you want to see the exalted be humbled in that, in that instance. Like, I'm even one, like, yeah, that's pretty stupid. There's something about wanting the exalted to be humbled and the humble to be exalted. And I really do want you to hear this, because this is the text today. This is the point today. Actually, if you look, there's so many verses. I only put up three, but there's many verses that teach this concept, that the exalted will be humbled and the humble will be exalted. Here's a few. Jesus said in Luke 14, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5, 6, he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. I mean, this is just a truth throughout Scripture. Those who exalt themselves, you're going to be humbled. Those who humble yourself, you're going to be exalted. Peter's like more of a plea, like humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may lift you up in due time. And here's what's happening. God of the universe humbles himself to a degree that I don't think any of us fully fathom. I don't think I fully fathom. This is why we study this, why we look at this. This is why the cross never should get old to us. Because the one who spoke the world into existence is suffering at the hands of those he created. And you see this great humbling, and then you see this great exalting in this passage. And this is really the truth. So the the thought or the topic today, you could say, is just the humble and exalted Jesus. The humble and exalted Jesus. And I I do want to talk through this idea of pride and humility, because if you remember verse 1 through 4, he's talking, don't be filled with uh, selfish ambition and pride. He's calling this out and saying, but look at Jesus who humbled himself. And so you really do see this contrast throughout the Bible of pride and humility. And so I'm going to throw a few thoughts up here, uh, primarily from this guy named John Stott, who wrote a lot about pride and some, some other thoughts mixed in with this. But here's what he says. All right, we'll throw this up here. He says, pride is your greatest enemy. Humility is your greatest friend. He says, pride, compar- or, yeah, pride compares yourself to other people. Humility compares yourself to Jesus. Pride is our greatest enemy. Humility is our greatest friend. Uh, pride will always look at someone else and be like, I'm doing better than them. I can't believe they're struggling with that. I'm not. Uh, you know, it's incredibly humbling looking to Jesus and comparing yourself to Jesus. That's incredibly humbling. He goes on to write, he says, a pride does not allow you to celebrate with others. Humility can't wait to celebrate with others. I think for some reason that's very true in our culture today, where if someone's doing something fun or exciting or something, you know, new house, there's a blessing in their life, like we, we can't celebrate with them. We're like, how, how can they do that? How, doing that again? Like, we just can't celebrate. I think there's a silent sense of pride in that. You can't celebrate with others. Humility allows you to celebrate for others and with others. He goes on to say this, pride criticizes it and humility encourages. Really, the prideful person at heart is always looking down. Can't believe they're doing that. Why are they doing that? It's always criticizing. 
Humility is looking just to exhort, to encourage, to build up. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Mere Christianity. Many of you know it. He has a chapter called The Great Sin. It's just called The Great Sin. And what do you think it's about? Pride, right? And in this chapter on the great sin, it's the most challenging thing. Uh, there's so many quotes. I'm actually going to give you one right now because there's, there's one that comes off the top of my head. He goes, the more pride you, you see in others, the more pride you have in yourself. He just talks a lot about this idea of pride. Here's what he writes. He says, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always, listen, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. I love that. A proud person is always looking down on things and on people. And as long as you're looking down on people, you cannot see someone that's above you. You see, pride criticizes and reduces just so it, what, it can elevate itself while humility will encourage. Next thought he shares is this. Uh, pride is about me. Simply, humility is about Jesus and others. I mean, pride is about what will this do for me? How will this benefit me? What do they, what do they think about me? It's about me. Humility is how can, I, how can I bless them? How can I make this about Jesus? How can we turn this into a Jesus moment? Humility is going to be outward looking. Uh, this one might come across a little strong, but pride is demonic. Humility is Christ-like. You're like, you're that's very strong language, I know. I mean, this is what the Bible describes. Pride being coming as almost, it's, just, it's from the evil one. Why? Here's a verse, if you guys remember this. Remember in Isaiah 14, he's describing the fall of Lucifer, the fall of Satan. How did that happen? How did Satan fall? He's a created being. He's a created angel. And how did he fall out of God's good pleasure? Isaiah 14, we'll read verse 12 through 15. We'll put it up here. It says in Isaiah 14, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For listen, you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation of the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. We see Satan in his heart well up with pride. And God's like, you exalt yourself, you're going to be humbled. I mean, there's just constantly this idea. And he says pride is really rooted. I mean, in mere Christianity on the, the chapter of the great sin, he does say just basically all, all sins are rooted in pride. I mean, any sin we have, we deserve better. I deserve more. They don't understand me. All that's rooted in pride. Next, he talks about this. He says, pride is about my glory. Humility is about Jesus' glory. About the Jesus' glory. <laughs> Sorry for that. Uh, number seven, pride leads to arrogance and smugness. Humility leads to confidence. And I think this is so true. You, there's a difference between someone who's smug and arrogant and they kind of walk around with that and someone who has a confidence and people can go, oh, they're confident, they must be prideful. No, conf there's one There's one of this. Pr smugness and arrogance comes from a confidence in yourself and your, how much money you have, your talents, your abilities, your social skills. It's confidence in you. Then there's a side of confidence that's just rooted and based in the Lord. A and we should have that. You're an image bearer of God. You bear the image of God. It's okay to have confidence. Confidence rooted in Christ. And so that's what he kind of distinguishes. Uh, pride... Uh, number eight is this. I love this. Pride seeks independence. Humility seeks dependence. This one's key to me. This one's so key. Pride is I don't need you. I don't need them. I don't need the church. I don't need this. I don't need anything I can do by myself. I don't need my boss. I don't need, I don't need anything. I don't need anyone anything. There's something about humility, which I feel like you discover a lot in marriage. It's like, oh my gosh, I can't be independent anymore. I need to be completely dependent on them and they're dependent on me. And there's something really humbling about that. There's something just humbling in general about being dependent on each other, on one another. Like, I depend on you, you depend on... There's this, there's this humility in that. It's not, I'm going to be separate, I'm going to be a lone ranger, I can do things myself. It is, I'm completely dependent on God and on each other, and there's something humbling about that. And lastly, this one's great. He says, pride is something you can achieve in this lifetime. You know that? You can't be prideful in this lifetime. Humility is something we continually pursue throughout this life. That one is key. Pride is something we all achieve. He was like, I've achieved the pride box. Yes, got that one. But he goes, humility is not achieved. It's just a, a continual pursuit. Amen? Like, humility is a continual pursuit throughout this life. As soon as, as, soon as someone's like, I've achieved, I've, I've achieved it. I've achieved humility. You're like, okay, obviously you have not achieved humility. So this is something that we don't really, like, um, talk about as a culture. This is not, like, an, an attribute that we, like, focus on. It's not like everyone, like, like in culture, there's not like, you know what we need more of? Humility. Like, that doesn't, like, happen on talk shows, really. But I think this is so important. Like, you're not going to listen to a song. It's like, like a rap video. It's like, yo, I'm so humble. I'm going to make you stumble. Oh. Like, no. Sorry, that was terrible. But that's not going to be the reality. This is not something we promote. Another way of looking at it is this way. Obviously, maybe you've heard this before, but if I right now were to pull up my phone and take a photo of all of you guys and we post it online and I put it up on the screens, 
Who are you going to look for for first? Obviously you. You're like, oh, where am I? I see me. Me. I look. And then know what we say normally? I don't look good. And know what that means? You're saying, I think I look better in real life. Someone affirm me right now. That's what we're, and that's what, everything's based in pride in that way, right? We're looking for ourselves. I don't think I look good. I think I look better in reality. It's, and it, the thing is, we just see this constantly in our culture. And here's the thing I, I do want to focus on and even just think about. Because Paul's introducing to us an example of humility, but it's so much more than an example of humility. So Paul is saying, where do you find this humility? You find it in Christ. Humility is not something you achieve. It's a continual pursuit. One way I want you to hear this, and please don't miss this thought, humility is a byproduct of wanting something more than to be humble. Humility is a byproduct of wanting something more than to be humble. So here's what I mean by that. Um, if you're saying, I want to be humble, why? I want to feel good. I want to be perceived as humble. I, it's so rooted in pride. There's, there's a side of humility. Humility can't even really be the goal. The idea is a person's the goal. Christ is the goal. And a byproduct of that will hopefully be humility. Because even if you're pursuing humility, we, we can pursue humility for the prideful wrong reason, right? Do we see that? And see, he's basically, Paul is saying, let's bring Jesus into focus. Let's make him our example of humility. Can I tell you, we're not ever going to be saved by our humility. Christ took on humility. Christ lowered himself. We believe on Jesus the one who lowered himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. I mean, it's not our humility that saves us per se. It's Christ's humility that saved us. There's a side of this where Paul is saying, bring Christ into the center of your life, into your focus. If there's arrogance, guys, the solution is what? Pursuing humility? No. The, the, the solution is pursuing Christ at the center. If Jesus is at the center, you watch those other idols fall away. You watch pride fall. You watch like, man, I just want to, I, I love what David says. And we prayed this. David said, I have always, I have always set the Lord before me. There's just something about Jesus. I need to make you center again. Now, like if we drift and we go, something else is center. Jesus, be center again. And so that we cannot pursue humility in and of itself. We pursue Christ. And really a byproduct of that will be humility. Does that make sense? And can I even say this? It's not even just a... Jesus' humility, he's, it's an example, but it's not just an example. It's an event. And when you think about Jesus' humility, the event was Jesus obviously lived a sinless life for three years. He died an innocent death on our behalf. He rose again from the grave three days later. That event saves us. We're not just looking to him as an example, but we're looking to him for salvation. And we're looking to him in all those ways to find what we're ultimately looking for. So here's what Paul is saying. He says this in verse 5, and here's what I want you to see. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Can you look at verse 5 again? Verse 1 through 4 is what? He goes, don't do things on selfish ambition. Esteem others better than yourself. And this mind that I'm describing is in Christ. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ. Um, I, I love that he's not just saying, learn the mind of Christ, know about the mind of Christ. He's like, let it be in you. Let the mind of Christ be in you. You guys, we as a church have to acknowledge, I hope we can acknowledge this. There's a lot of competing worldviews in our life. And then we even like, we, we, we get saved, we introduce Jesus into our life. Now we have like, okay, I want this Jesus worldview, but I also really like this progressive worldview. Or I want this Jesus worldview, but I also like my traditional worldview. There's really competing worldviews in our lives. You know, a guy named Charles Swindoll was talking about the different minds that we can have. He says, let's have the mind of Christ here. He talks about the different minds, and I'll just throw up a few of these thoughts to you, because I thought this was so good. He said this, Greece teaches, Greece said, be wise, know yourself. Rome said, be strong, discipline yourself. Judaism says, be holy, conform yourself. Epicureanism says, like, pleasing yourself, be sensuous, enjoy yourself. Education says, be resourceful, expend yourself. Psychology says, be confident, fulfill yourself. Materialism says, be acquisitive, please yourself. Pride says, be superior, promote yourself. Ascetism says, be inferior, suppress yourself. Diplomacy says, be reasonable, control yourself. Humanism says, be capable, trust yourself. Legalism says, be pious, limit yourself. Jesus says, be loving, humble yourself. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Be loving, humble yourself. Have, have, take on the mind of Christ. Now, here's what's going to happen. So he's transitioning verse 1 through 4 of saying, esteem others better. Look, don't look out for your own interests. Let this mind be in you. And then he just breaks into song about Christ. He's like, Christ be in the form of God. And this is where he gets into like that poem verse 6 through 11. And there's a few truths we learn about Jesus and we learn about God and who he is and his nature. And through these truths come very practical things that should shape and change our lives. All right, so here's these three truths. Hopefully you caught this. It's pretty simple. He's saying Jesus is God. Jesus is man. 
Jesus is a servant. All right? Let's just break this down. Verse 6 through 8. Jesus is God. Jesus is a man. Jesus is a servant. Look at verse 6. Jesus is God. Can we read that again? Verse 6. It says, Who, so let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Okay, so there's a few words I want you to circle. Highlight. Just know. Beware. Circle that word. First, the first word is this. Being. Who being. Circle the word being. All right, this word being just means this. Existing or existed. Here's what Paul's doing now. And don't lo- don't, I want you to see this big picture. Paul is saying Jesus, who is existing, who existed in the form of God. Jesus existing in the form. Jesus was not created. Jesus entered creation. Jesus is eternal. John 1.1 1, 1 says what? In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. So in the beginning was the word, eternal. And the word was with God and the word was God. And he said, yeah, Jesus existing, always existing in the form of God. Jesus said, what? I and my father are one. When someone claims and says, man, Christ, Christians, you don't even know your own Bible. You know, Jesus never claimed to be God. It's like, they, I don't think they've even read the New Testament. I and my father are one. Uh, I, I want you to see this, though, who being, being, existing, in the form, circle the word form now, in the form, circle the word form, is this word morphe in Greek, and here's what it simply means, and this is important. I'm not just giving you these words. It, it simply means exact essence, very nature, exact representation. It's this very nature, it's the exact representation. So Jesus existing in the very nature of God, the exact essence of God. You're going, Josiah, why doesn't Paul just say Jesus is God? I actually feel like Paul's being more clarifying and more specific here. So, for example, like there are people that believe they are God. Shirley McLean will say, I am God, you're God, there's divines and all. I think if it just simply said Jesus is God, people would just even put things into that. I think Paul's being, no, Jesus has always existed. He's eternal, and he has the very nature, the exact attributes of God. He's God. He's actually trying to get, I think, more specific. He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, or meaning this, that word robbery means grasped or exploited. So Jesus did not have to grasp to be God because he was God. He did not exploit that nature of God. He's God. He doesn't have to work for it. He's just, he's God. And he says this, so being in the very form of God. So here's why this matters. Jesus is God. Since Jesus is God, how should this change my life and your life? Paul's being really specific. Please don't miss this. Guys, can we understand first and foremost, I know this is like Christianity 101, but if we understand this, this should change our lives in many ways. So Jesus is God. How does that change my life? Well, can I tell you, Paul put it in a question for me. He goes, well, if God is for me, who can be against me? He's saying, Jesus is God and Jesus is for me. Jesus is with me. Who can be against me? If Jesus is God, what what does that mean for us? He lays down his life for us. What does that infer? What does that share with us? What does that tell us? One way of putting it is this. If Jesus is God and since Jesus is God, if Jesus is God, I like to ask a non-believer, if Jesus is God, that changes everything. So for example, since Jesus is God, the only way to react to that is extremely. Do you understand if someone did come to us and is like, you know, they say like Pluto for Mickey Mouse is God. You'd be like, there'd be a reaction. Like the point though with Jesus, when someone says Jesus is God, there should be this reaction, especially as historical as a figure he is, has debated as a figure he is, whether it's a world religion like Islam, whether it's a, a, a cultish like Mormonism, you look at this, this idea and definition of Jesus is everything. And here's why this is so important. When I say Jesus is God, that should do something in your heart where you either you extremely embrace him and love him and go, you are God and I bow and I worship you. Or it should do something in your heart where you, you want to run, you want to flee, you want to get away. You say, I don't like this. You're making a man to be God. You think what, here's what's so interesting to me. Judaism would have had the hardest time believing that God would become man. And yet Jews get saved in the early church. Something they thought that could never happen, God could never become man. They end up believing God became a man. I mean, something changed in a worldview. One worldview that could never embrace this idea was Judaism, and they embraced this idea. So this should, this should, this should cause some reaction. Here's another way of putting it. I'll put it in the quote for you. John Stott said this. It was so good. I just had to read it because it's just too profound. He said this. He says, if you read the Bible, you'll see that nobody who ever met Jesus Christ has ever had a moderate reaction to him. There are only three reactions to Jesus. They either hated him and wanted to kill him, they were afraid of him and wanted to run away, or they're absolutely smitten with him, and they try to give their whole lives to him. Let's just bring this down to earth for us. Um, 
since Jesus is God, it requires that you and I extremely give ourselves over to him. I mean, you either get so furious, you hate him, you want nothing to do with him. When someone says, I'm not really furious and I'm not really like, I'm just ignoring him, whatever. Can I tell you, ignoring God is an extreme response. Even if you don't think it's extreme. Like, I'm not really just paying attention, I don't really care. I'm sorry, not caring about God of the universe entering mankind is an extreme response. Jesus said it this way, you're either for me or you're against me. There's not this like, oh, I kind of like Jesus. He's like a good guy. That's an extreme response if he's God. We've got to see that. That's an extreme response. Uh, one other idea, Jesus said it to this church in Laodicea. Maybe you know the verse in Revelation chapter 3. Here's what he says. Jesus says to the Laodiceans, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot, so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Jesus even makes it clear. Listen, you can't kind of be like, I'm in the middle. There, there's no such thing as middle. You're either, he's like, you're either cold or you're hot. You're either for me or you're against me. Christians, this goes for us. It's not like, I, I love Jesus like on Sunday, but like Monday, like, come on, I want to do my own thing. Like you're either for him completely or you're against him. I mean, this really is being really, this, is, this ca- should cause an extreme response. So first thought is this, Jesus is God. Next thought is this, Jesus is man. And I love this. Look at verse seven, we'll keep reading. So verse six, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. So he says, Jesus is God and Jesus is man, huh? How does this work? So I've shared this before and you guys know this, but it's just good to know the term sometimes. We call this the hypostatic union. I don't know why, but theologians like to give big words for really simple meanings. It's Jesus has two natures. It's in one person. Jesus fully God and fully man. Please understand this, church. Please follow me on this. Don't get lost in this. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. He's not 50-50. We've got to be really clear about that. Um, he's also not 99% man, 1% God, or 99% God, 1% man. No. Like, there's some people who try to teach that about us. Like, you're, there's 1% divine in you. Like, no. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. And we go, okay, how? How does this work? So we look at verse 7. There's some key phrases. Look at verse 7 again. It says, he made himself of no reputation. Others say he emptied himself. Even in the, in the Greek, we'll get into this idea, this word is kenosis, but it might just simply mean he d- emptied himself of his divine attributes. How is he God then? We'll t- let's talk about that. But also the idea that by what? Taking on, it says by taking on the likeness of man. So let's just think through this and look through this. Jesus is God, but he's also man. We would call this a, the teaching or the doctrine of kenosis, this emptying of himself. What does this mean? What does this look like? All right, let me make it really, let me put it this way. Um, one guy, I thought he wrote a book. It was called Big Truths for Young Hearts, and it's so good. Like, even though, like, you might be older, it's, it's good for us. Um, he writes and says, no, this is the doctrine of subtraction by addition. Subtraction by addition. Subtraction by addition. How does that make sense? How do you subtract and add? Subtraction by addition. Here, here's the point. Here's, like, the illustration. So let's just say, not up here, but let's just say outside, you walk out these doors and there's like a brand new Rolls Royce. I don't know. Like, you know, it's half a million dollar car. Just beautiful. You can like talk and it'll like drive up to you. I don't know. Whatever cars do these days. But it's like a beautiful car. And let's just say like, I'm like looking at it with you and I'm like, I just pick up all this mud and I'm just smearing mud all over the car. Like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> I'm just like covering this brilliant Rolls Royce in mud. And all you see is like a mud-shaped mobile. And like, what just happened? Here, here's the idea. It's still brilliant. It's still beautiful, just covered in mud. If I were to wipe away the mud, the brilliance would be exposed. The brilliance would shine forth. The brilliance would come out. You see it. Now, it's still a Rolls Royce, and it still has its brilliance, and its beauty It's just covered with filth and mud. Incarnation. <laughs> God. God, who's beautiful. God, who's glorious, wrapped himself in humanity. He clothed himself with humanity. And you think about Jesus' death and resurrection. They saw him. They saw this glory. I mean, it's almost like it's being exposed again. I, I want you to see that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And it's so important to understand both, both sides. It's so important. As God, he, he's the Lord. He's the king. He des- deserves all of my devotion as man. He relates to me. He understands me. I love this, this, to- this doctrine of Jesus being fully God and fully man. Just let's carry this out. Jesus, God of the universe can say, hey, hey, hey. I know what it's like to be tired. Hey, I know it's like to lose my best friend. Hey, I know it's like to have a prayer not being answered. Hey, I know it's like to die. I can relate to you through death. (laughs) We have a God who can relate to us in such a beautiful and profound way that no other worldview offers. Let's just explain that. No other worldview offers this, this, that God is not just some distant guy in heaven who gets involved once in a while. 
God entered his creation and walked among us and says, I know, I know, I know what it's like. We have a God who understands. This is so beautiful to me. Hebrews 4.15, you know the verse, but we'll just put it up there. Hebrews 4.15 says it this way, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Here, here's the idea. Jesus did not have an earthly father, so Jesus did not sin. He was tempted at all points as we are, yet without sin. In Adam, all die. Jesus did not come from Adam. He came from God the Father, not Father Adam. He had an earthly mother, so he's fully man, but he's fully God. And this is, so, this is such an interesting, we can explore this more. There's something called the impeccability of Christ, where like you can tempt him, but you're not going to get him to sin. It's like a rowboat can attack a warship. It can attack a warship. It's not going down, right? Like there's that idea behind the impeccability. Like, you know, you can tempt him, but he's not going to go down at all. He, he's, he's God, but he's man. And, and this teaches so many things to us about Jesus. Can I, can I tell you what this also means? This idea of kenosis, not trying to sound these big words, it means he's emptying himself as, of his divine privileges, Think through that. So Jesus is fully God, yes. Jesus, as God, is omnipresent. Jesus in the body was not omnipresent. I'm going to mess with your minds today. All right, forgive me. Uh, Jesus, as God, is omniscient. Jesus, man, is not omniscient. He goes, he goes, I don't even know when I'm coming back. Only my Father knows. Hmm. I mean, there's, there's certain attributes of, that Jesus has as God, but not as man. And, and there's something about this. Here's what that means. So wait, wait, wait. Because For years, I thought, Jesus walked on water. Yeah, he's God, right? People are like, oh, he's God. I'm like, okay. Like, Jesus fed thousands. Jesus shared the gospel. People repented, believed. I mean, it's like, yeah, because he's God. No. He did that in his humanity. He didn't do that in his deity. He did that in his humanity. It's when Jesus was being baptized by John the Baptist, the Holy Spirit comes upon him like a dove. That's when his ministry began. That's when his power began. See, the thing about Jesus, we've got to understand, is I also think he was the most disciplined human. I think he experienced the power and work of God, not because of his deity, but because of his humanity. Because honestly, I don't know anyone like him who's fasting 40 days and 40 nights, who's praying nights, nights in prayer, who's fully given himself over to God, who's, who's literally going, I don't have money. Let's go ask that fish. Uh, go fishing. Okay, pull coin out of fish. Like, I just think Jesus had such a reliance and trust on God. Like the, the thing for us and you and I to see, when Jesus says, and you will do greater things than these, I struggle with that. Does that mean greater in quantity because the church is bigger? Maybe. <laughs> Does that mean greater than these? Yeah, probably. I, I think there's a side of this where, man, what if we were to press into the Holy Spirit again? What if we were to be disciplined like Jesus? What if we have nights in prayer as a church? If I said, hey guys, we're going to like, on, on like Tuesday night, we're going to like spend all night in prayer. I'm not certain to do that. But like, I wonder like, would like people be there and be like, you know, would I be there? <laughs> right? Like, what would that look like? I'm, I'm just saying there's something about Jesus who's just so disciplined, who's so all in, who's like, I need the presence of God to do the work of God. You see, you see that Jesus is fully God, but Jesus is also fully man, who got tired, who got hungry, who got sleepy, and he counted on God for provision, for miracles, just like you and I do. You see, the cool thing about even Christianity, which I just, I wish I had more time to talk through, we're like, again, we're the only worldview that offers God cares about the spiritual and also the physical. Some worldviews teach only physical matters, spiritual is nonsense. Other worldviews teach it's only about the spiritual, physical is nonsense. God says both matter. Both matter. He's going to redeem the earth, redeem our bodies, give us a new body. There's something about the physical. God took on flesh. Jesus right now incarnated. God took on flesh, died, rose again. He's in heaven in a body. God cares about physical. There's something beautiful about that. God cares about physical needs as much as he cares about spiritual needs. What worldview offers that? Others say only preach the gospel. Others say only do works of justice. The Bible says do both lead with the gospel, but also meet needs. And I think this is what we see that in Christ, it's so beautiful. Fully God, fully man. Amen? We should have more time to like dive into this. It's so good. So much there. And not only that, number three is this. Jesus is a servant. Jesus is a servant. Can we read verse eight again? Or verse seven and eight. He says, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He goes, Jesus God, Jesus man, Jesus bondservant who died. All right, so here's how I view this. If, if I'm God and praise God, I'm not and you're not. But if I'm God, I'm going oh, to enter creation. I'm going to live in a palace. I'm going to have servants serve me. I'm God. I just came to earth. Like, you should be thankful I just came to earth. Like, right, that's enough. But he, God did not come to earth and live in a palace. God was born in a stable. God did not have a home. He was homeless. He said, foxes have holes, birds have nests. I have nowhere to lay my head. 
Jesus did not come with all this prestige. I mean, the Bible even says he wasn't even like attractive looking, good looking for people to be like, oh, I want to follow that guy. It's like just average Joe looking guy. There's something about God becoming a man and just taking on, I'm going to become the servant of servants. There's something about my God that is so beautiful that way. Mark's gospel says he did not come to serve, but be served. John 13, the God of the universe is on his hands and knees cleaning the disciples' feet. That's my God. My God is not just a man, he's a servant to men. Unbelievable what the Bible teaches about this. And then Paul, in verse 8, says, he did not just come, but he came to die, even the death of the cross. So here's why I want to point this out. Please listen. This is a poem. Six verses, six stanzas, three lines per verse, three lines per stanza. Verse 8 offers a fourth line in that stanza. The fourth line is this, even the death of the cross. You know why that's so interesting? That would just pop out to you. You have a poem, it's like symmetrical, like all of us like love symmetry. You're like, oh, it's beautiful, it's symmetrical, you know. And they say, like, oh, I don't like that one. What is that one? It's fourth line instead of three. It's like, well, he's pointing out the death and the death of a cross. And he goes, and he even died the death and death of a cross. Let's talk about the cross. If the, if the Bible stops and focuses, let's stop and focus. What is the death of the cross? Here's the idea. He's really emphasizing how the violence of the, of the death of the cross. He goes, even the death of the cross. Like, even, he didn't just die. But Jesus' death was a violent death. Do you understand that? Do you understand that before Jesus was even crucified, he's being flogged? They take a whip, this whip of nine tails, called a cat of nine tails, right? On this whip is nine cords with bone, with glass, with metal balls. So as they're pounding the back, the metal balls are like tenderizing the back, almost like tenderizing meat. And the bones are going in the skin, they're ripping skin off. I mean, most people recount flogging and say most people died alone from the flogging. Organs would, organs would be exposed. I mean, a crazy amount of just blood loss from the back just being torn apart by these 40 lashes by this cat of nine tails. Jesus takes that flogging. Then they put a beam on his shoulders to carry his cross, probably about 100 pounds, goes for this long walk. I mean, you think about the nails that pierce through his hands and his feet. You think about when they drop the cross in and the weight that goes down on the nails. The point is this. The, the author is saying, remember this word cross or crux, that was believed to be like a, a swear word in that time. Just the word cross. No one would say like the cross. No one even say, they don't even talk about it. It's like you don't talk about that. You don't talk about the crux. You don't talk about the cross here. So the author's saying, Paul's saying he died a death and not just any death, but the death of the cross. He died the most shameful, humiliating. I mean, they would stay there many times for hours. Jesus was there for hours, just hanging there. Many times they're just sitting or standing or being held by their own urine. Like below them is their own urine and blood and feces. People are mocking them, spitting at them. People throw rocks many times at the people on the cross, shaming them. I mean, Jesus, <laughs> you think about what he went through. It's like even the death of the cross. It wasn't just a violent death. But what we see about here is it was a voluntary death. Here, here's what I mean by that. Jesus didn't just die without an option. <laughs> Jesus willingly gave up his life. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 18, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down to myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. Can I, t- can I tell you the good news about this? Jesus is like, I willingly, I willingly do this. It's not that they're forcing me. I willingly did this. It's been said, it wasn't the nails that held Jesus to the cross. It was his love. I think that's so true. The nails didn't hold him there. It was his love for us. It was a violent death. It was a voluntary death. Jesus' death was a vicarious death. What does vicarious mean? It means a substitutionary death on behalf of someone else. His death on the cross was not for himself. It was for me and for you by name. It was on your behalf on my behalf, the verse that we share here and love here and just want to always talk about is God made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of Christ in him. God took on sin so I whom just fill with sin can take on Christ's life and righteousness. He switched places with me. He switched places with you. Is vicarious death. That should have been us paying for our sin, but Jesus paid for our sin. I owed a debt I could not pay, and he paid a debt he did not owe. I mean, that is this vicarious death. And, and not only that, but is a victorious death. Jesus' death was a victorious death. When he's hanging there, he says, and he, before he breathes his last, it is finished. It is finished. Paid to less like God. The plan for salvation, to pay for the sins of the world, is finished. It's done. The author in Philippians is saying, look at Jesus, who is God, became a man, became a slave, a bondservant, and he died a death and the death on the cross. That's the God we worship. That is the God you and I serve. Even the death of a cross, he's emphasizing. Even the most shameful, despicable way our God took on. And here's the truth we see behind this. Jesus shows us the way up is down. You want to go higher? Go lower. You want to find your life? Lose your life. I mean, this is constantly the Bible's message. You know, if, you want, if you're trying to save your life, you're going to lose it. 
you're trying to lose your life, you're going to save it. You want to go up, go down. <laughs> it's so, it's just saying, hey, get, go lower, go lower. You can still go lower, you can still go lower. So here's the idea. Jesus humbled himself to become a man and not a man in a palace, but a slave, and not just a slave, a slave who died innocently. And then he says, and God has highly exalted him. So now let's get to that part. Because God loves to exalt the humble, and he loves to humble the exalted. <laughs> so God's going to humble, or God's going to exalt the humble. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, therefore, in light of all of this, therefore, God also has highly exalted Jesus and given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I mean, this is the Bible. It says before there's glory, there's suffering. Before there's the crown in heaven, there's the crown of thorns. I mean, he's saying Jesus humbled himself, so he's exalted. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of those in heaven, of those on earth, of those under the earth. Every, guys, every knee will bow. I love this. This means Brad Pitt will bow the knee to Jesus. Madonna will bow the knee to Jesus. Trump will bow the knee to Jesus. Obama will bow the knee to Jesus. Everyone will bow the knee to Jesus. And the idea is either now or under the earth. Everyone's going to bow either willingly now or you're just going to do it. <laughs> but every knee will bow to Jesus. Every knee. This is so profound to me. Paul's like, every knee will bow. Do you understand what he's saying? Imagine being a Philippian owning this. And you had to go around saying, like, Nero, Kyrios, like, Nero is Lord. You had to go around saying, Nero, Caesar is Lord. Nero, Caesar, Nero is Lord. And then Paul's like, Jesus is Lord. And guess what? Everyone will bow the knee, even Nero. Like, ah! like this, this is blasphemy to them. Owning this can get you killed. Reading this out loud could get you killed. This is why they were fed to the lions during the time this was written. This is why Paul's in jail. Because this is a scandalous truth to the world, that Jesus is Lord. Only. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. That's a scandalous truth. Can I tell you the gospel is exclusive? It's only through Jesus, but it's inclusive. It's available to all. It's exclusive. It's only through Jesus, but it's inclusive. God says all. Come. See, Jesus Christ is Lord. My hope is this, that everyone in this room bows the knee to Jesus willingly now while they're breathing here on the earth, not under the earth. I would love for everyone here to say, Jesus is Lord. And can I say, it's not just a prayer you prayed. It's not just words you say mindlessly, Jesus is Lord. You know, there's so many, there's so many thoughts attached to this. At the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus. The, the Jews called the name of God Hashem. It's like they didn't want to say God's name. So what they said, they said Hashem. That means the name. So Jews would be like, uh, uh, speaking of God's name, they say Hashem instead of like Yahweh or Lord. They just say Hashem. They didn't want to say it. And this author, Paul, or this poem, this confession is saying the name, the name, the name above all names, Jesus. You know, you think about all, all that the Bible says about a name, Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run to it and are safe. All those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, Romans 10.13. Acts 4, verse 12 says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other name other than the name of Jesus that saves us. All those who say, Jesus, save. All those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There, there's something about this. Again, it is this calling out and it is this belief in the heart. Romans 10, 9 through 10 does describe and says, If you confess with your mouth, Lord Jesus, Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you, do you confess that, and do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you surrender to that? Do you give yourself to that truth that Jesus died and rose again? He goes, you're going to be saved. Why do I love Christianity? We have the most unique worldview, grace. It's the most unique thing. Just call upon the Lord. Wait, wait, I don't have to like, travel to like, Mecca. I don't have to like, have a, a pilgrimage. I don't have to like, go to door for like two years and do like, a mission. Call upon the name of the Lord, you'll sh you shall be saved. Grace makes Christianity so unique. It's Jesus who paid it all, all to him I owe. Jesus saved me. I just want to serve him now. The, the, the response to Jesus is what? It should be extreme. It has to be extreme. Guys, honestly, my question for everyone in this room is, have you bowed the knee to Jesus in surrender and said, Jesus, take over. You have all my life. You have my sexuality. You have my finances. You have my free time. You have my education. You have everything, Jesus. Everything is yours. I saw that one part's held back from you. Everything, you are Lord. You are Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You are Lord, be my Lord. It's Simon when he's in the boat. Jesus like, cast the net on the other side. He's like, Rabbi, you don't know what you're talking about. And then they catch the net and they go, he goes, Lord, I've sinned. <laughs> he went from Rabbi to Lord. Ha has Jesus gone from Rabbi to Lord in your life?
has he gone from just a good teacher, a good guy, to being the Lord and the king of the universe in your life? Guys, I beg with you, I plead with you today to do that. If not, let Jesus be Lord. He's a good Lord. He's the Lord who laid it all down. He's the Lord who serves his people. He's the Lord who died even the death, even the death of a cross. That's my Lord. I say this, believe on Jesus today. Please, like I beg you in a sense. I, remember, I love the verse in 2 Corinthians where Paul says, we're begging you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. When he says, I beseech you, he said, I beg you, I beg you, be right with God. I don't want to see anyone confessing Jesus Lord under the earth. That's going to be a reality for some people. I would love to see people do that today. Amen? Now what we're going to do, we're going to take communion. And we're going to take communion. You know what that time is? That's a time for us just to reconfess he's Lord. We're going to hold the, the, the body, in a sense, the bread, and just saying, Jesus, you gave your body for me. We're holding a cup with juice and say, Jesus, you shed your blood for me. And Jesus, I want to be one with you. I partake, you come, I partake because I want to be one with you. I love you. I believe in you. Listen, if you don't believe in Jesus, don't take communion. If you're here though and say, you know what? I want to believe in Jesus, trust in Jesus, look to Jesus, call upon the Lord, take communion. It's that simple. It's your faith in him, your belief in him. Listen, I'm going to pray. We're going to have a little bit of time of worship. We're going to pass communion. Guys, please listen. Don't get distracted right now. Just take some time to be alone with the Lord and just say, Jesus, you're Lord, be Lord. What area of my life are you not Lord in? Guys, will all of you take a moment to ask Jesus, what area of my life are you not Lord in and become Lord in that area? Just ask him. That's that everyone does that. As you take communion, hold the cup, hold the bread, and say, Jesus, you're Lord, but be the Lord, truly be the Lord in every area of my life. I give it all to you. I'm going to pray. We're going to pass out communion, and I'm going to come up here and close with some closing thoughts and announcements. So take it after you have some time to pray. Feel free to take communion when you're ready. Jesus, we just thank you that um, <laughs> you paid a crazy debt on my behalf, on our behalf. God, I just, I just ask that um, this would not be some good scripture or doctrine that is good once in a while. Let it be good news all the time. Jesus, you are Lord. There is no one like you. We're here to remember you through communion, to celebrate you, to thank you, to cry out to you. God, for, for those who've been Christians in this room for a long time and say, this is good for someone else, Lord, I ask that you'd speak to them. <laughs> Lord, for those who are walking in this place and maybe they're just, they're far from you, they believed in you and their heart is just far, they, they worship or serve other things, I just ask that today that those would fall at your feet, Jesus, that they would serve you, the living God. God, that those other things, that God, the other things we might serve at various times, that they become miserable to us. That those things we serve, they would just bring sickness to us because Jesus, none of those things can satisfy like you. God, we just ask even as we just take communion now, our hearts, our minds, our focus we brought to you, that we'd set you, Lord, always before us. So we thank you, God. This is a time to celebrate you, your death, your resurrection, and the fact that we'll also take communion again one day with you at the feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We look forward to eating with you, looking to you, Jesus, and let us remember that even as we take that now. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. Guys, feel free to come forward, pass out communion, and take some time just to pray over it.